0: Today, before we look into God's word, together two announcements. first of all, something to celebrate. this past week. We closed on the Homestead Church property. It is now ours. Work has already begun <laughs> to make it handicapped accessible. You could say yesterday we were ramping up for our new beginning, and because of your generosity in the next Gen faith campaign. No mortgage. It's all paid for. It's ours. And the first worship service will be held the week after Easter. So the church plant was started Easter weekend a year ago. One year, one week later, it will be in its present and future home there in Homestead. Not only is the sanctuary virtually ready to go, but next door there is a home of several stories that will be translated into office space, children's space, youth meeting spaces, counseling spaces, and so on. So there'll be opportunity for those of you who are skilled in the trades and decor and so on to volunteer and be a part of that. But rejoice with our team that is planting that church there. They now have a home. They won't have to set up every week tear down 15 minutes after they're done because the theater is needed. They'll be able to hang out, fellowship, build community. So thank you for your prayers, and let's celebrate that milestone. Then the second announcement has to do with the change in our staff. Nate Borsma, our communications director, resigned a bit ago, not because of any problems, but because when he and his wife and their small children came to Pittsburgh, they didn't know He would be working at the church for a while. So they each began an entrepreneurial adventure, a business of their own. Well, while Nate was serving here and enjoying his service, his business began to take off, and so did his wife's, and they quickly found themselves pulled in far too many directions as a couple with small children. So they prayed for a couple of months, just do they give up their business ventures and, and just pursue the continued role in communication or whatever? But they felt their long term future was in those business enterprises. So He submitted his resignation to us. They're still a part of our church family and will be serving in volunteer capacity. But I just wanted you to know that and to thank Nate publicly for three major projects he did during his two years on staff. One, he brought our website out of the 17th century and into the 21st century. We're really appreciative of that. Second, he established the church app that so many of you use now to take notes, to know what's coming up, and so on. And then he put put together all of the materials for our Expanded Influence Next Gen campaign. So three major endeavors, and he hit, we believe, three home runs. So when you see him around church, take a moment to stop and thank him for his efforts, his contribution over these last two years. Well, today we're returning to our on-again, off-again study of the book of Daniel. And it'll only be on again for this weekend because next week's Palm Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday. Today we're returning to the fourth chapter of Daniel. You'll remember our theme as we've studied this book is keeping faith in a corrupt culture. And believe it or not, the fourth chapter has a lot to say about that. It records something that is rarely seen. And it records words that are rarely heard. It records the conversion of a proud ruler when he was at the pinnacle of his power. Not when he was desperate, but when everything seemed to be going his way. And it records his subsequent words of appreciation for a seven-year bout of insanity. Now, obviously he wasn't thankful for the insanity itself. That would be insane. He was thankful that God cared enough about his soul that he brought him to his knees so that he could bring him to his senses. Conversions as dramatic as that of King Nebuchadnezzar don't happen every day. And they never happen in a vacuum. They're always the result of God's previous behind-the-scenes maneuvering. There's always a story behind a conversion. And God's heart is revealed as much in the story behind a conversion as it is in the conversion itself. And obviously, God wanted us to know the backstory to Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. That's why it's in God's Word. He wanted us to know what he did to bring about such a dramatic reversal in that man's life. And he wanted us to know why he did it. Because he wants us to understand that's the same way he patiently pursues the hearts of unbelieving people today. And it's the same way he patiently pursues our hearts if we got off into some detour of unbelief. So that's going to be our focus today, how God maneuvered behind the scenes to bring about the transformation of a man. To set the stage, I want to read the king's words after he came to his senses. They're found in chapter 4, part of verse 36, and then all of verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar said, at that time, my reason returned to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, keep that in mind, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in. In pride, I've entitled our study this weekend, The Hard Road to Sanity. The Hard Road to Sanity. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few moments, I want to faithfully echo your great heart. We want to know you as you are, not as people think you are, but as you have revealed yourself in your word and in Jesus. Father, by your Spirit, enable me to represent your heart and your truth accurately. By that same Spirit, help us to see what we could never see on our own. To see your heart and to see your eternal truth. And then help us to put it into application, because that's the whole point of knowing it. So, Father, I pray, let the words of my mouth and the responses of our hearts... Be pleasing and appropriate in your sight. And by your Spirit, empower us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God to speak to our souls today, through his living word, may the Lord be with you. All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the very popular, often quoted definition of insanity. Insanity. That says insanity is doing what? The same things over and over and over again and expecting one day we're going to get a different result. You know that one. Hey? But by that definition, I would like to suggest that unbelief is the ultimate insanity. The ultimate insanity. Ultimate because the consequences of unbelief are comprehensive and eternal. Insanity, because those who reject faith in Jesus keep doing the same things over and over and over and over again in the expectation that one day they'll actually work. That one day unbelief will fill their life with purpose and meaning. That one day unbelief will satisfy the deep longings of their souls. That one day unbelief will satisfy... Answers give satisfying answers to life's big questions. That one day unbelief will solve the stubborn problems of the human family. That one day unbelief will eradicate evil. That one day unbelief will produce a world of love and justice and peace. But that one day never happens. It hasn't happened for thousands of years. The Bible's clear as to why the insanity of unbelief is so stubborn and who's ultimately responsible for that. Scripture tells us that unbelief doesn't persist because God is silent. He is not. It persists because the unbelieving are arrogant. They suffer from the chronic conviction that they know better than God. And convinced of that, they are loath to admit to their madness despite the clear diagnosis of Scripture and the overwhelming evidence of human history. Instead of repenting, they redouble their efforts in things that have never worked before." And that's why after thousands of years, humanity finds itself mired in the same old, same old. That's why philosophers and politicians and writers who promise us a brighter future and a better day always prove to be bogus. And their promises always prove to be hollow. Now, lest you think I'm Just picking on people who aren't in the room or people who are in the room and aren't yet in the kingdom, let me remind you, every born-again child of God began life in the insanity of unbelief. We were all practicing insanity when God visited us with His grace. Now, thankfully, despite the bleak record of humanity, all is not lost. God's Word offers us hope. It assures us that we can be restored to spiritual sanity. We can recover our spiritual right minds through faith in Christ. We can see things as they really are. We can discern reality and we can discern lies. But we don't begin to engage that restoration process until we're convinced we need to be restored. And that's a conviction we don't embrace easily, no matter how often unbelief fails to keep its promises. So for that reason, the God who wants to restore us to spiritual sanity may first have to convince us of our need. And sometimes he does that by way of some gracious promptings. Now, don't let that word Gracious fool you. Grace is not always soft around the edges. Sometimes the edges of God's grace are sharp and hard. The story of Nebuchadnezzar reminds us that God's gracious promptings are often hard. But where they're hard, they're hard out of necessity. They're hard because like Nebuchadnezzar, we tend to ignore God's soft warnings. As the king looked back, he realized that God's hardness is an expression of his patience. It signals that he hasn't given up on us. He's just changed his tactic. Now, God had been incredibly patient with Nebuchadnezzar and he had reached out with soft grace many, many times in many different ways over the course of many years." He reached out through the compelling witness and testimony of Daniel and his three friends. He reached out through tailor-made dreams and sobering interpretations and warnings. He reached out through incredible miracles that displayed his power and his sovereignty. But despite some fleeting moments of sanity... When Nebuchadnezzar for a moment recognized God and praised God with words worthy of David and the Psalms, the king always defaulted back to the insanity of his unbelief and arrogance. He flirted with the notion he needed God, but he quickly got over it. So in a last-ditch effort to save Nebuchadnezzar from Nebuchadnezzar, God visited him with an imposed insanity, with sharp, hard-edged grace. And strange as it may sound, that imposed insanity was his last good chance at recovering his sanity and coming to his senses. And that reminds us that when God is pursuing our heart, a hard time may just be the gracious prelude to our recovery. It may be a messenger of hope. And I say that because though we don't often put it this way, belief in God and in the goodness of God is an acquired taste. Now why do I call it an acquired taste? Because what does Scripture say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. God invites us to taste and see the goodness of God is an acquired taste taste. eh? But when we turn up our noses at that offer, the way our children turn up their noses at Brussels sprouts, the God who invites us to taste and see that He is good may require us to taste and see that our unbelief is not good. And given the power of sin and the tenacity of pride, that process may require a long time. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it required seven years. The king began to think that he was an ox, and so he roamed the fields and ate the grass of the field for seven years. Now, as you might suspect, there's been a lot of speculation about the exact nature of his affliction, Some suggest he was suffering from what is known as boanthropy. It's a mental affliction where a person imagines they're an ox and they act accordingly. Others have suggested alternative diagnoses, but whatever the diagnosis, Daniel made it very clear that the onset of that insanity was the direct intervention of God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar said, At the end of seven years, I raise my eyes to heaven. Obviously, he was saying more than I looked up at the sky. He had done that every day, I'm sure. No, he was talking about a change in his spirit. I raise my eyes to heaven. He took his eyes and his focus off his hard condition, and he put his focus on the heart of God. And in response... God restored his sanity, saved his soul, and restored his kingdom. Because sanity always returns when we focus on God's heart. And God always honors those who look to his heart as he honored Nebuchadnezzar. Now that gracious process that God used to finally bring Nebuchadnezzar to his senses wasn't easy, it was hard. It wasn't pretty, it was ugly. But it proved effective. Because the once cocky, arrogant, boasting ruler in transparency and humility confessed his previous conceit and praised and thanked God for humbling him. That's not something you hear every day from a powerful emperor. Now, what does Nebuchadnezzar's hard road to sanity experience have to say to us? Because that's why we're here. What does it have to say to us? Let me suggest it says two very important things. First, It speaks to our theme of keeping faith in a corrupt culture by reminding us why our culture is corrupt and why it is increasingly hostile to our faith. And it has very little to do with us. There are those within the church that are always blaming the church for the hostility of the world. And while churches can sometimes follow Jesus at a distance and sometimes obey His commands rather badly, the ultimate reason why our culture is hostile to faith does not have to do with the failings of Jesus' followers. It has to do with this fact. When human intellect defies God, God allows that intellect to, to be darkened notice i didn't say god causes the intellect to be darkened i said god allows it to be darkened if we shun God's gracious invitations to sanity, individually, as people groups, as cultures, God will eventually withdraw his restraining hand, his protective hand, and allow the consequences of our choices to arrive at their inevitable destructive conclusions. He removes his restraint and essentially says, if that's the way you want it, knock yourself out. Go for it. I'm not going to fight you over this anymore. And you never want to be in a place where God's not fighting you anymore. Because if God's fighting you, it's to keep you from something that will destroy you. The worst place to be, is in a place where God's silent. When human intellect defies God, He allows it to be darkened. We all know the Bible says, you reap what you sow. But while the Bible doesn't use these words, it also shows us that sometimes God graciously causes crop failure. What do I mean by that? I mean sometimes... We sow, and God graciously protects us from reaping what we've sown. He causes crop failure. Be thankful He does. Be thankful He has not allowed you to taste the bitter result of every sin you've ever committed. We serve a God who causes crop failure. That'll preach. But if our insanity proves stubborn, then to continue the analogy, he'll let nature take its course. He'll let the chickens come home to roost. He'll let the harvest unfold. Now here's how the New Testament describes that. It says, when a people stubbornly refuse God, he gives them over to the lies they want to believe. He stops fighting them. He stops resisting them. He stops warning them. He just says, go for it. Knock yourself out. He allows us to practice our preferred insanity without his interference. When that happens, a culture loses all ability to recognize the truth. No matter how you explain it to them. No matter how you wrap it up. No matter how you package it. And the culture ends up grazing in the grass like Nebuchadnezzar, living on a diet of spiritual laws and acting contrary to our created identity. Nebuchadnezzar was created as a man in the image of God, not as an ox, but he was acting outside of his created identity. Every unbeliever is acting outside of their created identity. You see, the rejection of God destroys human reason. And by the way, for the record, I'm in sales. I'm not in management. What God is doing is above my pay grade. But if you were to ask me, do you think God has given the United States of America over to its lies? Without hesitation, I would say yes. Because I'm seeing the insanity. One example of the insanity, the dissonance, when the recent pro-abortion legislation passed in New York was celebrated at the top of the Freedom Tower with a display of lights, many people don't realize at the bottom of the tower, at ground level, there is a memorial to the 9, 10, or 11 children who died in their mother's wombs at 9-11. So at the top of the building, we're celebrating the termination of human life in the womb, and at the base of the building, lamenting the loss of human life in the womb. Crazy is the appropriate word for that. That's logical dissonance. That's moral dissonance. That's intellectual dissonance. There is no way you can package that as reason. Because cultures... That refuse God are given over to the lies so that they can't discern the truth any longer. And again, it's not God doing it, it's God giving them their wish. That's why otherwise rational, intelligent people become irrational where God is concerned and can't recognize how irrational they've become. They say things like, There are no moral absolutes, not realizing that's a morally absolute statement. And if there are no moral absolutes, you can't say there are no moral absolutes. You're defying yourself, and that passes for enlightenment. They contend humanity has to choose between God and science when elementary logic tells us theology and science aren't alternatives, they're complementary. One explains the world in terms of agency, who's at work, the other in terms of mechanism, how does it work. As Galileo said, science tells us how the heavens go. The Bible tells us how to go to heaven. There is a place for both. Many atheists persist in maintaining that atheism is not a belief system while they write books trying to convince you to believe it. They falsely suggest faith is belief without evidence, while they deposit their faith in their intellect and refuse all of the significant evidence contrary to their belief system. Evidence like the one we'll celebrate in two weeks, the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is not a competing philosophy based on some leaders' speculation. It is based on a historic event, the resurrection of Jesus who said, I am God, what I'm saying is true, I'm going to prove it conclusively by my resurrection. He did it. Nobody's matched it. Nobody ever will match it. And to not follow Him, you have to be insane. You see, the refusal of God darkens their intellect. So let's quit beating up one another. We're really lousy Christians. That's why the world doesn't believe in Jesus. The world doesn't believe in Jesus because it doesn't want to. It doesn't want to. I've shared with you before the story of Josh McDowell lecturing, I think, at Harvard. One prof just kept, by the way, there are godly profs in all these, but they're persecuted. But one prof just, objection after objection after objection. Josh said, prof, if I could answer your every objection of the Christian faith, would you follow Jesus? He said, no. He said, why? He says, because I'd have to change my life. There's the issue. There's the issue. Now, given that reality... Given the fact that the only hope for our contemporary Nebuchadnezzars who've lost their capacity to reason is God's sometimes sharp-edged, hard-edged intervention. Here's the second takeaway. Believers must not attempt to shield the unbelieving from God's hard-edged grace. What do I mean? Let's not try to shield people from the hard things God has to say to them about sin and the need of repentance and the exclusivity of Jesus and the coming judgment. And let's not try to smooth the hard path that God has set before them. Because if we do that, we may cut them off from the recovery of their sanity. If we make God soft when God needs to be hard, We rob people of their opportunity to regain their sanity. We cannot minimize the reality of sin. We certainly can't redefine sin as virtue. We cannot celebrate the fruits of insanity by calling them alternative realities. We can't give people over to lies by suggesting that they aren't lies at all, that Peter got it wrong, that Paul got it wrong, that Jesus got it wrong, and we now know better. We must allow lost people to see themselves for who they are must not try to remove the offense of the gospel. The Scriptures say the gospel is offensive to the arrogance of humanity. When you try to remove the offense of the gospel, you end up preaching something that is not the gospel at all. The gospel often has to ghetto slap the arrogant heart before it can restore it. And if we try to remove that ghetto slap, we end up producing people who see the faith as unnecessary and irrelevant because if I'm essentially good to go as I am, why do I need Jesus? In our culture, we have embraced insane definitions of friendship. In this culture, friendship means I always affirm you in what you're doing. My God, you're kidding me. If I see you going down the primrose primrose path to your own destruction, if I'm your friend, I'll affirm you. Well, I'm sorry, friends like that, you don't need enemies. That's not friendship, that's betrayal. The Bible says the wounds of a friend are faithful. So are the wounds of your best friend, the eternal God. A friend will get in your face and say, Don't be an idiot. Don't be a fool. You don't want to go here. This has never got to work for you. And I'll love you, but I will never affirm this. That's a friend. Hey, that's a friend. There is an offense to the gospel, but it's the sharp, hard-edged grace of God that brings restoration. If we try to take off, oh, God said don't do that, but we know now He's okay with that. The Bible says no, but it really means yes. Don't take that stuff literally. Just be nice. And while we claim to be compassionate, we're cutting people off from recovery. You see, God may need to bring your friend or family member to their knees before He can bring them to their salvation. Don't get in His way. We need to remind ourselves it's impossible to be more compassionate than God. His hard edge grace is more loving than our soft edge, fuzzy, mushy notions of love. Every time I hear people saying, oh, it's not really," there won't be a judge, people won't be lost, that's not really a sin, I just want to say, you're trying to be more compassionate than God. You're suggesting you know what is best for humanity at a better, higher level than God. You think you're better at his job than he is. How can any broken human being ever be more compassionate than God? The very thought is blasphemy. The very thought is satanic. He thought he'd be better at ruling the universe than God. Let me wrap it up. On a personal level, that's where it always needs to come. If you have rejected faith in God and today find yourself in a hard place, or if you're a believer who has gotten onto a detour of unbelief and now you're in a hard place, remember, the hard place isn't evidence that God has abandoned you. It's evidence that a loving God has changed his tactics, but he's still pursuing you. pursuing you by putting your feet on the hard path to sanity. So in a moment where you're in that hard place and you know it flows out of your unbelief, you have a choice. You can doubt God's grace because of your hard place or you can find God's grace in your hard place. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He found God's grace in his hard place. You can see compelling evidence that God is not good, or you can see compelling evidence that God is good and tireless in his efforts to restore you to sanity. And you can understand from this story that sometimes God's sharp-edged, hard-edged grace is your greatest hope of recovery. But church, we can always and should always try to do the work of God better. But even if we did perfectly, the world hates the truth. We're not going to win any popularity contest. Because they've lost their ability to reason. But let's not try to counter that by making God's hard grace soft. The Pharisees of Jesus' day always tried to make the commandments of God harder. The Pharisees of contemporary America try to make the commandments of God softer. Both are nonsense. Preach the truth in humble love. Refuse to compromise. Be the vessels of God's hard-edged grace, helping people refine their sanity. Let's pray together. As we pray in the quietness of that sanctuary you call your heart. If you came here today, you're not a follower of Jesus, but God's been pursuing you. And today, He pretty well turned on the last light. And you want to respond to His grace. You've tried unbelief, and it ain't working for you. All you need do in your heart of hearts where He knows your every thought is confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Ask Him to change your heart and your destiny. Confess your belief in His resurrection and commit yourself to follow Him. If you're a believer and you've been on a detour of unbelief and God's spoken, do the same. You've already confessed Jesus as Lord, but now acknowledge His hard-edged grace. Thank Him for it and repent of that unbelief. Heavenly Father, in a culture that can no longer tolerate the truth, that struggles to see the truth, help us to be champions of that truth, no matter what they call us, no matter what they think of us. Help us to live for the only opinion that matters, And help us, rather than betraying our generation, help us to be faithful to them with the hard-edged grace of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.